Chapter 9, verses 35 through chapter 10, verse 8. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore earnestly pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, so give without pay. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. You would join me in prayer. Lord, we give you thanks and we give you praise for this morning, Lord. We pray, God, that. Lord, our worship so far this morning has been honorable to you, Lord. We thank you for our confession of faith and our confession of uh, sin this morning, Lord. God, that you have heard our pleas for mercy, and Lord, you have granted them, Lord, in the person and work of the Son. And so, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for Christ, Lord, for his death and his burial and his resurrection, Lord, victorious over sin and death and Satan and hell itself. And so, Lord, as we... Continue to worship this morning, Lord, through hearing your word and through Eucharist and more song, Lord God. We pray, Father, that you would be honored by our worship, Lord, that you would open our minds and our ears and our hearts to hear and to understand and to believe, Lord, what you have inspired in your word and what you have done for us in Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you uh, or a device, or if you don't, uh, there should be some Bibles in the pews in front of you. I'm going to actually ask you to open it up because while our bulletin stops in chapter 10, verse 8 of Matthew, we're actually going to continue all the way to chapter 10, verse 23 today. Because what we will see in verses 9 through 23 actually directly impact the text that we will look at next week, which we'll pick up in chapter 10, verse 24. Um, so I'm fully aware, right, that this is, this is a whole lot of text, right? If we go from chapter 9, verse 35, to chapter 10, verse 23, that's 27 verses of Scripture. That's a lot of text, right? Um, <laughs> uh, so it's not that big a deal, but it is a lot of text, right? So, But in looking at such a big chunk of text, 
it's important to really kind of keep in mind the themes that Matthew has been presenting to us over the last few weeks, right? So for those that uh, have not been able to be here or for those that uh, have forgotten or for those that are just listening and they're not here with us in person uh, because we actually do record the sermon time, right? Uh, But just as a reminder then, let me give you a very, very quick recap of the premise that, that we are looking at, right? So we have been working from, since Trinity Sunday, this premise that the Great Commission that Matthew gives us in Matthew 28 is the thesis, it's the purpose of the church as we as the Bride of Christ live between the advents of Jesus, right? He came and he will come again. So before he left and went back to the Father, he gave the church a commission. He said, go, make disciples, baptize them, and disciple them, basically. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And so last week then, what we are doing also is we're basically taking the entirety of ordinary time and we're going to look through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to build out of that Great Commission thesis. And so last week then, in chapter 9, starting in verse 9, going all the way to verse 26, what we had is we had Jesus in verse, uh, excuse me, verse 13, we had him telling the Pharisees, and obviously us as well, that what he desires then is mercy and not sacrifice. He tells them, go and learn what this means. They call him teacher, so he says, all right, fine, I'm a rabbi, I'm going to give you some homework to do. Go back to Hosea and tell me what Hosea meant when he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so we looked at the context around that. And so what Jesus tells us then is what he is desiring, at least the way Matthew is starting to present it, is a ministry of mercy to those who are sick. And so he displays this example of this ministry of mercy through the rest of what we looked at last week. And he even tells them, he says, look, I did not come for those who are well. Those who are well do not need a doctor, but those who are sick. I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. And so through the rest of that text last week, Jesus displays this ministry of mercy like a physician who has come to heal those who are sick, who's making a house call. And so he shows mercy by calling Matthew. A hated tax collector, right? He is the lowest of the low in his society because he has betrayed his people to the Romans. And so they hate him. And Jesus calls this tax collector to be his student, to be his disciple. Then Jesus really ups it even more in that same scene, and he goes to Matthew's house and eats with Matthew's friends who are tax collectors and other sinners, other ostracized people of the society. But then Matthew also shows mercy in the rest of this text by healing a woman who had a 12-year hemorrhage of blood. This makes him almost completely unclean according to the Levitical law, right? He is touching a woman who has a blood discharge. So not only has he now been sitting and eating with tax collectors and sinners, but now he touches somebody who has been bleeding for 12 years. But then he goes even further like a doctor to heal the sick. And he goes and he touches a dead body. And he raises a little girl from the dead. And so each of these examples that we saw last week serve really as, and I'm going to use hiking language here. I did use some, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Um, Although I have only barely been on any kind of hikes. I have read a lot of books on hiking because I like the idea, right? Even though I don't like to do it physically. So in hiking, when you're hiking a trail, especially a long trail, there are these things called trailblazes, right? Where, Where those that upkeep the trail go along with white paint or some kind of marker and they mark the trail. That way you know you're on the right direction, right? And so what we looked at last week kind of serve as thematic trailblazes through Matthew's gospel. They serve as route markers 
along what, again, I'm going to give a dorky title to this, but along what we can call the Great Commission Trail, right? So if we're going through the Gospel of Matthew and hiking along this Great Commission Trail, then we need trailblazes. We need route markers to tell us we're going the right direction. And so each of these examples from last week serve as trail markers. They serve as trailblazes. And what our text for today then does, starting in chapter 9, verse 35, and going all the way to chapter 10, verse 23, is it offers us three additional trailblazes. And so imagine, if you would, and I know, I know Connor, you've hiked some in East Tennessee. I've, I have stepped onto the Appalachian Trail, but I've not actually hiked any of it, right? So if you're out in East Tennessee, you will eventually, especially if you get to the Smoky Mountain area, you will eventually come across the Appalachian Trail. So imagine today, if you will, that we are in East Tennessee, and we're hiking from Georgia to Maine, on the Appalachian Trail. That's a 2,200-mile trail. People do it every year. It takes about six months. And so if we are currently in East Tennessee on the AT, then we're about 200 miles into this thing. But that means we still have 2,000 more miles to go. And so, as we're hiking, we see just up around the corner, right, we see a little white paint on a tree, which is the trailblaze for the Appalachian Trail. And we see this first trailblaze here in this text, which is in chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. It finishes out chapter 9. And it's this trailblaze of laborers for the harvest. There's this needy harvest, and there needs to be somebody to go out and bring it in. And so Jesus says this. Again, he says, He went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were, they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This end of chapter 9, for me, really kind of feels a little bit like the Great Commission itself. right? There's, there's this, it's very familiar and in, in feeling, I guess, if you want to use the language of feeling. Feeling is not a good way to discern a lot of things scripturally, but it is a good you know, indicator of some things every now and then. So this feels kind of like the Great Commission. You need to go. <laughs> you need to go do something. And Jesus tells us here, he says, there is a bountiful harvest. Right? He's looking among these crowds. He's looking outwards and sees the harvest is ripe. Right? It's ready to come in. And it desperately needs to be brought in. And the only way that it can be accomplished, because the harvest is so massive, is if laborers are being sent out into the field to, to reap the harvest. Matthew, in this section, he actually uses three words, specifically in verse 36, which is the second sentence there in your bulletin, that really adds some context to the urgency of Jesus' proclamation here. And it's this word, compassion, harassed, and helpless. These are heavy words here. And Jesus' ministry of mercy that we saw beginning last week and now here, it continues, but now it's because he has compassion on these harassed crowds whom he compares to sheep that have no shepherd. In the Greek, this word compassion really brings up this visceral reaction. These are visceral emotions, right? Right? We have so many words in English that can describe certain things, but, but the way things are written in some of these ancient languages, they, they display so much more emotion and so much more reaction to things. And, and, and in Greek, this word has this almost violent reaction behind it. 
So compassion can be understood as something along the lines of pity, which really tells us something interesting as we, as we now begin to take up Jesus' ministry of mercy ourselves, right? So Jesus, he's not condemning these people. He's not looking out over these crowds and saying, you're a whole bunch of sinners and you're going to burn in hell, right? He, said, he has pity on them. He's heartbroken over them because they're like lost sheep who are meant to be found and to be brought home. And the terms that he uses for these crowds are also very weighty, just as weighty as compassion. The term helpless could be understood as lying helpless or as confused. So if you're like me, and sometimes you, you, you probably scroll YouTube a little too much, you may come across little short videos of, of people that like find abandoned dogs somewhere or find an abandoned cat somewhere, right? And so think of an animal, in this case, when you're, when you're thinking of this phrase helpless, or excuse me, harassed. No, it's helpless. I'm going backwards. Sorry. And helpless. Think of an, think of an animal that has been abandoned by its owners, like completely just kicked out of the car or dropped off on the side of the road somewhere or left in a home when people move away. These things happen, and it's heartbreaking when you see these videos. So think of an animal that has been abandoned by those whom it has come to trust and to rely upon, and whom they honestly, in their small, very simple minds, thought, these are the people that will care for me. And now it's been left alone. It's been abandoned. It's confused. It's scared. It's terrified. And it doesn't know how to actually care for itself. It doesn't know how to find food because it has never had to. That's what this word helpless means. And the word harassed takes this even further. It can mean something along the lines of weary or beaten down or troubled. But there are actually even more violent words that could be understood here. Something like harassed could be understood as torn apart or flayed. So keeping that abandoned animal in mind, imagine this animal has not only been abandoned, but it's been neglected to the point of starvation. Or it has been injured by a predator and it's been left alone to die. That's the picture that should enter our minds when we come to chapter 9, verse 36. Because this is the reaction that Jesus had when he sees this large crowd that is in front of him. And he has pity on them. It's no wonder that he told the Pharisees to go look at Hosea 6 and say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Do you not see these pitiful, helpless, confused, and injured people that need someone to care for them? They were failed shepherds. They had abandoned their flock to starve to death and to be maimed and to die by themselves. And so it's from that reaction that Jesus describes in verses 37 and 38 that there is a need, there is an opportunity, there is a need for laborers, there's a need for workers. Because the harvest, the reaping of these pathetic, pitiful souls is plentiful. In the Old Testament, the language of harvest, and we see this even in Hosea chapter 6, at the very end of the chapter there, the language of harvest 
is usually used to refer to God's judgment, right? He is coming to reap the harvest. He's coming to take it in. And we, see, we actually see John the Baptist using a similar type of, of language when he's baptizing on the Jordan River. But here, Jesus actually kind of turns that on its head a little bit. And he says, this harvest language to his disciples as he's talking to them is, is that we are not being sent out. The disciples are not being sent out in judgment, but rather they are being sent out in mercy and in compassion. Listen again to verse 38. Well, in verse 37, he says, Then he said to his disciples, so again, he has pity on these people. The harvest is massive, but there's no one to go and work it. So pray, desperately pray to the Lord to send out workers into his fields to bring in the harvest. This term sent out here in verse 38 can, it also has some other interesting terms that could be translated. It could be understood as thrust out or force out or even kicked out, like pushed out, right? So really, what you have is this mental picture that there are plenty of laborers who can go into the field and who can do the work of bringing in the harvest, but they're just sitting around doing, doing absolutely nothing. They're remaining idle. And so while Jesus tells us, he says, look, you need to pray for laborers, he doesn't take the responsibility of being a laborer off of our shoulders. So we should absolutely pray for those to go into the harvest. We should pray, and we should pray hard, and we should pray earnestly. But we should also remember that we too are laborers who need to get up and go out into the fields. And what this does, actually, here in these two verses, this actually serves now for the Gospel of Matthew as a transitional point in his Gospel. Because what Jesus is now doing for the very first time is including anyone who would be his disciple in his mission of redemption and mercy. He's saying, it's not just me that's going to do this, but now you're going to do this. And so now as we continue to hike along the Great Commission Trail, right? We see the second trailblaze coming up. We've been walking for a few miles. There's a lot of trees, right? It's summertime right now, so everything's in full, you know, everything. Everything's in full leaf, and some things are still blooming, as my allergies are telling me. So we see, we've kind of, are we still on the right direction? Well, we are. We see another little white trail marker on another tree just up the hill. So let's keep going. And now we come to chapter 10. And we look at all of verses 1 through 15, which serve as the second root marker. So again, if you haven't already opened your Bibles or your devices, go ahead and make your way to Matthew 10. And listen as I read verses 1 through 15. Some of this is in your bulletin, but the rest you'll need to have a Bible open if you want to read along. So again, we see, And he called them, called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot. I just noticed now in our bulletin that it says Simon the Zealot. So I have an older version of the ESV, so it doesn't have Zealot in there. Anyway, so Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. 
These twelve he sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. You receive without pay, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. All right, so what we have here is Jesus, again, he's turning to his disciples, particularly the twelve, and he places now his ministry of mercy upon their shoulders. So what he is doing now is, again, he's looking out over these crowds, he's seeing their pitiful condition, they are like sheep without a shepherd, and so what he's doing is immediately raising up shepherding disciples. Right? He's raising up shepherding disciples to go and to be the laborers who will bring in the harvest. And what he does now is he empowers them to go out and to invite the physically and the sinfully sick. Just like he has been doing since he walked out of the desert victorious over the devil in his temptation. And with this text, actually, there's, there's a big elephant in the room that just kind of stood in my way all week. And I know a few folks in the room that I've talked to understand this because I was kind of griping about it a little bit this week. Not because of what the text was doing, but because of how to handle it, right? So there's, a, there's this big, giant elephant in, in the text that you have to kind of deal with. And as you read this, you start to immediately think, okay, there's obviously some giftings here that are happening, right? There's some empowerment in this text. And this is dealing with the spiritual gifts. We talked about this on the day of Pentecost. These are, these are the results of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church. And, but this is a moment, and I know you've probably heard it, I know I've heard it, where many dive off into a theological debate over the continuation of the gifts, or their cessation, meaning their ending, right? So, I'm taking this little side trail, right, to a little hiking, you know, to a little, like, picnic spot for this point. I'm going to make a statement that is going to make both sides of that argument angry, right? Because I like to do this, right? You know, I like to, you know, stick a, a stick in the spokes of the bicycle, right? So, here's my statement. I think that this text is both, <laughs> And let me explain, right? Because I think what we have here is both descriptive and prescriptive. So by descriptive, what I mean is that this text is absolutely and completely describing this particular context for these particular disciples of Christ in their particular time and culture. Absolutely. This is not made up. It's not a fable. It's not a story brought out of thin air. This really happened. But by prescriptive, I think what Jesus is doing here is prescribing, like we would go get a prescription from a druggist, right? He's telling us, 
This is a direction for the ministry of the entire church, regardless of our time and culture. Again, let me explain. As this relates to the spiritual gifts, now there are some who would argue that these gifts have completely stopped, right? They're done. I think that's a bit of a stretch. We see this happening in the book of Acts. We see it happening through the rest of the Bible. And frankly, we see things throughout all of Christian history that would contradict that argument in some form or fashion. There are some who would argue that these gifts continue in their fullness even now because we all have the same indwelling spirit of Christ that the apostles had, that the early church had, that the fathers had, the Puritans had, the reformers had. We all have the spirit of Christ dwelling in each one of us that have called upon his name for salvation. There are whole sermons and whole Bible studies based upon this particular argument, and that's all I'm going to say about it because that's not the context of what's happening here. So, and the, but I don't want to brush over it because this is a very big deal. It's not something that we can just ignore and move on, right? It was very tempting to look at this and say, okay, what other details in these verses between 5 and 15 can I talk about without ever bringing this up, right? Because it would just be easy to do that. But I need to be completely honest. I don't have a full grasp on this. Because I'm still learning and growing in my own understanding of what God is doing in this, right? Some of you know this better than I do. And frankly, since I will be held personally accountable before God on how I speak and teach and preach, I don't want to speak on this out of ignorance. Instead, I bring all of that context up to speak where I do understand how God is working within this and within what Matthew is getting at in his gospel, especially as it relates to this idea of being sent out by Christ to do these powerful works. And so it's in this way that I think we can understand that this text is absolutely descriptive for the apostles, but prescriptive for the church. Because this not only describes the ministry in this particular time that Jesus sent them out to do, but it is also built upon the Great Commission and the result of the work of the Spirit being poured out on the church. And there's two things within these verses, especially verses 5 to 15, with a little bit of verse 1 thrown in there, that we can take note of as Jesus sends out these 12. He sends them out by his power to do the ministry itself, but also he tells us how to handle the reception of that ministry, how we are to respond to those who react to that ministry. So look here at this ministry itself. We see it in verses 1 to 8. I'm not going to reread those, but that is what is in your bulletin. Our Orthodox friends note here something quite interesting that I thought was really helpful regarding the descriptive context here. They say, keep in mind that the disciples, the apostles here, are not sent out to sow. They're sent out to reap what had already been sown by the prophets, what had been sown by John the Baptist, and now what had been sown by Christ. And so the point that we are to take from this is that the number of those who are sent out into the harvest is not as important as the power by which they are sent out into the harvest. That's the key to understanding these first eight verses of chapter 10. And it tells us something really quite interesting and frankly something profound for the church today in 2023. Now, we here at Christ Community, we're a small group of followers of Christ, right? And we have some folks out today, which makes us feel even smaller. (laughs) 
But many small churches, and I'm not, I'm not accusing us of doing this, but I, I know I have, I have pastored other churches, I have youth pastored in other churches, I've served as lay pastor in other churches. Many small churches adopt a mindset that because they are small, the work of doing this ministry that Christ has empowered us to do is a challenge because there's not enough time in the week, there's not enough energy among the people in the room, there's not enough people in the room, right? There's not enough money or resources to do this well, so let's just not do it at all. But the assumption in that forgets the fact that we are not sent out by our own power or nor are we sent out based upon who we have and our resources. We are sent out by the power and the authority of Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. The work itself, the ministry itself has not changed, but our perspective on it has, right? The disciples' mission, our mission, that we see here in these verses is the exact same as Jesus' himself when he was on earth in the flesh. And that was to go, he tells us in verse 7 here, go and proclaim, go and preach the gospel of the kingdom of heaven but also heal everyone who is sick. And so now, by and under the authority of Jesus, his disciples now have his authority over demons and over diseases and even over death itself. And Matthew really helps us in this descriptive, prescriptive argument by the way he uses a particular Greek word here in chapter 10, specifically in verses 1 and verse 8. But he uses the exact same word in verse 1 and verse 8 regarding this authority and regarding this ability to heal every disease and every affliction. He uses the same word at the beginning of our text today in verse chapter 9, verse 35, and all the way back in chapter 4, verse 23, as Jesus started to heal diseases and to cast out demons and to um, heal those who were sick. So remember, in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus says this, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so now you go. The church has been empowered by, just as the original twelve were, the same empowerment and authority of Christ to continue the work and the ministry of Christ. And in Jesus, the kingdom of God is already active and already present in the world. One commentator notes something here. He says this, this is, this is just a great quote. He says, the preaching of the kingdom of heaven, like we see here in verse 7, it shouts that the universal, the worldwide, liberating and saving reign that comes from God and to us is a reign that is a reality of the future, but it is also a reign that can be experienced now in the present. This is our already not yet life in the kingdom of heaven. It's something we're waiting on, but it's something we can absolutely and utterly tap into now. And this is how the healing power of Christ is still at work in the church today. The disciples are pushed out to proclaim that with the coming of the kingdom of God also comes healing. 
Remember, like we saw last week, Jesus is healing of the sick. And we see multiple examples of this in chapter 9. His healing of the physically sick was to always point to his healing of those who are spiritually sick. And so by the authority and the proclamation of Christ and the kingdom of heaven, the spiritually sick are healed and made well. By the authority and proclamation of Christ and the kingdom of heaven, those who are dead are raised out of the death of their sins. By the authority and the proclamation of Christ, those who are lepers are cleansed, and those who have demons have them cast out. And the twelve, just as much as today, are fully to participate in Jesus' ministry of mercy. And we are given his authority in both word, by the preaching of the kingdom of heaven, but also indeed by healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, and casting out demons. That's the ministry that we have been empowered to do. But look at how he tells us to respond to the reaction to that ministry. This takes up the rest of that first section that we just read in chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. Again, he says this. He just says, Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter a house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust of that town when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So notice, he interestingly, he frames this ministry that he has empowered us to do within the context of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So pretend for a moment that you... You know, or maybe, maybe somebody in here is the case, or somebody listening. You don't have a clue as to what Sodom and Gomorrah is. Now, most of us do, right? Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, if you really want to know and you don't know, go to Genesis 19, which is the beginning of the Bible. I'm not going to turn there. We're going to look at it, I imagine, in a few weeks on Wednesday nights. Well, maybe more than a few weeks. Uh, but, point is, in Sodom and Gomorrah, these towns are, frankly, the worst of the worst at this point, right? They are utterly and completely depraved in so many ways. And so in Genesis 19, two angels are sent from God to Sodom. But more specifically, they are sent in to retrieve Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his family to bring them out of Sodom because the harvest is coming, the judgment is coming. We could even say that these two angels are sent into Sodom with a message of redemption before that coming judgment. And just like how these angels were sent out so too the disciples have been sent out into these towns and into these villages. In the same way that the church has been sent out into the world and into these towns and villages and cities to proclaim the gospel and to heal the sick. And and he tells us here, he says, if this ministry is received well, we are to let the peace of Christ that we bring because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are to let the peace of Christ to rest in that town or in that village or in that city or in that home. But if it is not received, then we are to get up, shake off the dust, and to move on. Shaking off the dust. We don't do this now, right? We don't wash our feet the way that these early centuries did, right? Because we have socks and shoes that we wear that cover our feet from the dust and the dirt. Uh, But shaking off the dust, especially in this context, in this Jewish context, 
represented a complete and utter rejection. It was a repudiation. And so, for a first century Jew, and this would have clicked immediately with these 12 disciples, if they had to, for some reason, do business in a Gentile area, or they had to, as much as they tried to avoid it, travel through Samaria, when they got out of that area, they would take off their sandals and their robes and get all the dirt and dust from that area off because... They thought that they were being made unclean and polluted by those dirty, nasty, gross people. So similar to this, to shake out the dust of a town is to treat its residents as rejected pagans and idolaters. And so faithless cities would face then, he's telling them, stiffer judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah, which were completely wiped off the face of the map. Sodom and Gomorrah could have at the very least pled ignorance. But with the preaching of the gospel itself and the healing that comes with it, no one can plead ignorance. Not these villages, not these towns, not even our own cities today. Paul tells us in Romans that no one is without excuse. And this is really where it gets a bit uncomfortable for us, right? Because, because it feels as though that if, if, we, if we get up and we leave then we haven't been faithful to that ministry that Christ has given us, right? We think we're giving up. But notice here, he says leaving, leaving a place because it rejects the gospel is not a sinful response. Instead, it's wisely not casting our pearls before swine. And it's allowing the Lord himself to handle the outcome of whatever possible seed may have been planted. And because a house or a town rejects, they're not rejecting us, they're rejecting God. And they're not rejecting us, but they're rejecting the gospel. And they're not rejecting our peace, they're rejecting the peace of Christ that passes all understanding that comes when a Christian enters a place. And so now, very quickly, we can see that final third trailblaze coming up, right? And I'm about to beat this illustration to death and say, we're going to make camp for the week, right? Because at some point on a trail, you've got to stop hiking and you've got to set up a tent and you've got to camp, right? You've got to make food. You're hungry. But he tells us in verses 16 to 23, which again is why I had you open your Bibles, that there is a necessary reminder that when we participate in the ministry of Christ, rejection is not only possible, but it's absolutely guaranteed. Listen to what he says in these final verses. And this, uh, I promise this will be very quick. He says, Behold... I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, meaning mankind, right? This doesn't mean women are any nicer to Christians than men are, right? So that's not the point. Beware of mankind, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and they will flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will all be hated for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in one town, 
flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And so when we engage in this kind of ministry, when we engage in this mercy ministry of Christ, by casting out demons and by healing the sick and by raising the dead, persecution and rejection are natural responses. They're natural responses because the world is sick in sin. It is dying and destitute in sin. But Jesus not only encourages us here to continue, he reminds us that sometimes the best response to rejection is to simply get up and leave. And so he tells us in verse 16, he says, look, be wise as serpents, but also be as innocent as doves. To be wise as a serpent is to hide yourself, right, when necessary, in order to flee and fight another day, right? Again, just to bring out YouTube, because I've seen this before, right? You come across these videos sometimes of people, most of us in here, I imagine, absolutely hate snakes. Right? I want nothing to do with snakes, right? I've stepped on those little ring neck snakes, which are, they're, they're technically venomous, but they can't really hurt you. Um, I stepped on one barefoot one time while I was brushing my teeth at night, getting ready to go to bed. It got in our apartment, and I think I screamed out like a little girl. It, it was startling. But nobody likes snakes. But there are some people that will go and retrieve a snake if it gets on somebody's property, you know, especially if they have kids or small dogs. And a lot of these videos that I've come across on YouTube, there's one particular channel where their whole thing is getting rattlesnakes, and rattlesnakes are absolutely scary, right? But the good thing about rattlesnakes, as opposed to cottonmouths, is that rattlesnakes will tell you that they're there, because <laughs> they have the rattle, right? But there have been multiple of these videos where the rattlesnake, while it's doing its rattle thing, it's, it's curled back to strike, it's scooching away as much as possible from the person trying to retrieve it. Because really, at the end of the day, more often than not, a rattlesnake, and not that this makes it any better, I would still shoot it if I had a gun, a rattlesnake, unless it's hunting, more often than not, doesn't really want to bite you. Right? It's just like, leave me alone. Right? Leave me alone because I'm a cranky little snake and I just want to eat mice and not bite you. And so they'll back away. They flee. And so in a similar way, we, we live in a world that rejects the kingdom of God. And it oftentimes rejects it very, very violently. And in order to be obedient to the great commission of Christ, we must sometimes retreat. And so Jesus instructs us, he says, look, you need to be wise. Snakes are wise. They know where to hide. They know where to slither away. They know the best places to get away from things. So you need to be wise, so that way you're not unnecessarily wounded. And so that you can also continue to be able to do the work of proclaiming the gospel to a world that is sick and needs it. But at the same time, he tells us here, he says, look, you need to be innocent as doves as well. So unlike snakes who strike, we are not to retaliate against those who do us wrong. Because sometimes snakes do strike. Rather, we are to be blameless as we proclaim the kingdom of heaven and as we proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Doves are known for being very peaceful animals, which is why doves are symbolic of the Holy Spirit so much in Scripture. They're known for being social. They're known for being friendly. They're known for being very loyal pets if you really want to actually have a dove as a pet. And so this second image, what it does is it properly balances our need to be wise as serpents. We are to engage in the work of the kingdom of God, but we must also be very careful, but not be so cautious as to not take risks when necessary. And so it's with this temperament that he tells us here in this section that 
he warns us, he says, look, you're going to be hated because of my name. And this, does not, this will not only come from the world, it will not only come from Babylon and from the government, right? But it might even come from your own parent. Your parent will hate you because of me. It might turn you over to the government to kill you because of the gospel. Your brother will do that. Your sister will do that. Your own children will betray you because they hate me in order to gain favor with the world. And so regardless if we respond with wisdom or we respond with peace, those who are sinfully sick will hate how we respond to their rejection and their persecution because they hate the name of Christ. And But he follows it up and he closes it out here. He ends with a word of encouragement. He says, look, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this word, endurance, it's, it's, it's something passive, right? It's not something, you kind of actively do it, but not really, right? It's something that is done to us, right? If you're running with endurance, you're basically trying to achieve this runner's high to where you can just kind of keep going without realizing you're continuing to go. And so we are to persevere. We are to endure anything that comes our way. We are to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And again, this shows there's a balance of temperament that's necessary in order to accomplish this ministry that Christ has empowered us to do. We are not to rush headlong into death with some delusion of grandeur. But we should be willing to die for Christ if necessary. But we should also, when threatened, feel perfectly confident that it is okay to flee to where it is safe to preach the gospel. So persecution must not cause us to quit, but rather cause us to be wise enough to move forward in boldness in the great commission of Christ. And so all of this rejection, this persecution, and even the power and authority now given to the people of God through the work and the Holy Spirit, all of this is a work of this ministry of mercy to those who are sick and in need of a doctor. And while we may be tempted to be angry and frustrated when a sinful world acts sinful and fallen, we have to remember that these people are like sheep without a shepherd. They're lost. They're confused. They're completely and utterly directionless because they listen to the voice of the stranger, not the voice of the shepherd. And like Christ, he's telling us here, he says, have pity on these people. Have compassion on these people. You don't have to affirm their sin. But they are to be pitied. They are pitiable people. And so as we go with the gospel and go with the mercy of Christ, we are to have compassion, have the compassion of Christ. Even in times of retreat due to persecution and rejection, we should shake off the dust, not out of pride and not out of a mode of superiority, but out of pity. When we shake the dust off of our feet, because they have rejected Christ, this should not be done with a haughty attitude, but in a pitiable mindset. These people have rejected the only thing that can save them. So therefore, as we set up camp for the week, and as we come to the table, and as we go this week under the authority and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to go and make disciples and heal the sick, cleanse lepers, raise the dead, and cast out demons. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.